This is the Financial Tech Podcast, show number four for March 31st, 2011. It is the Financial Tech Podcast. I am back again this afternoon with my good friend Andrew Hunt from VP at the Gallup Federal Credit Union. That's me. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well, Jim. How are you? Good. It's kind of a dreary day out there. It is. We're in the Gallup Studios doing some recording for today, and we're back for number four. We took a couple weeks uh, between here and the last one. What have you been up to over the last couple weeks? Oh, man, what have we not been up to? We've had uh, a lot of loan applications. It's car buying season, for sure. That's right, yeah. yeah. Got some good stuff coming up around loans. Uh, yeah, too. trying to do some promotions, and uh, you know, we've got some some stuff going on here at Gallup uh, that's driving some loan growth. Oh, very so, cool. Yeah, just been really, really breakneck busy. So. Excellent. Well, glad to have you back again, and if, uh, if you want to follow Andrew, you can do that over at gallopfcu.blogspot.com. Uh, Did I get that right? That's the same. Very good. I'm learning that. And of course, if you want to email the show, if you've got questions or comments or ideas or things you'd like Andrew and I to cover from a financial and technology perspective, podcast at theaverageguy.tv. And we, we've gotten a couple emails, and it'd be good to get a couple more. So if you're listening to this and uh, you're like, hey, we'd like you to cover whatever, um, throw that in, and, and uh, you may even get your email read on the podcast. Very cool. You know, I was just thinking about that this morning, and I would love some listener questions. I think that would be yeah. killer. And so I really want to encourage anybody who's listening to, uh, I know you've got a question. So jot it down in an email and send it to us. We'd love to, love yeah. to, and love to cover it. It's not that hard. Podcast at theaverageguy.tv. Just send us an email, and, and uh, I don't bite. <laughs> and uh, you'll get your, your email read online or on the, uh, the podcast. So it's pretty cool that way. So, Andrew, you posed a question to me uh, earlier today, and that is what would happen if I won the lottery, right? Right. And, and and so I'm not a lottery player, but for just a second, let's just say I was. Um, that's a pretty good deal for me, isn't it? I mean, I get an opportunity for a buck or two or 20 or whatever it takes for me to get that ticket. Um, I, you know, I could be fabulously wealthy, right? Well, that's what they want you to believe. You know, that question kind of came to me. I was having dinner with some friends the other night, and I hope you guys are listening and you'll know who you are, uh, <laughs> where one of my buddies said, you know, someday, once I win the lottery, guys, I'll do whatever, X, Y, and Z. And I immediately thought to myself, and this, you know, you've been blogging and podcasting a little bit too long when you immediately identify content in your life. <laughs> We're going to add this to the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And you just go, oh, man, I got to write, write this down. Let me grab a napkin. And I thought, man, it, well, let's dive into um, talking about people who win the lottery. I mean, it's in the news right now, those people in New York that won $319 million or whatever. Um, and so I thought, uh, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, some of the states that promote lotteries uh, actually sell it as fun, right? right. I mean, it's, it's kind of like it's entertainment, right? right? And, and, you know, I guess I'm not, uh, I'm not one that's going to be adamantly against the lottery, but you got some statistics yeah. to talk about when it comes to the lottery. So, so what, are the, what are the numbers behind a lottery? Well, so I, I dug in, and, you know, of course, if you've ever bought a lottery ticket, which I'm ashamed to say I, I have once or twice— um, I don't anymore now that I understand the uh, <laughs> the math the numbers, it. The math. and hopefully you won't either after yeah. we after we do this. But anyways, so at the very bottom of the ticket in the fine print, it tells you the odds, um, or you could calculate the odds as well. But so I went out to the Powerball website today, which is the primary lottery in Nebraska and Iowa. There's a Mega Millions or something like that as it's well. It's like too. nine states or something like that. Yeah, it's pretty big. Um, and right now, the odds of winning the Powerball are. One in seventy six million two hundred and seventy five thousand three hundred and sixty, and yeah, you know that's kind of a big number. And so I wanted 76 to seventy six million. Seventy six million. Yeah. So I wanted to compare that against something, and I thought, uh, 
you know, gosh, what are the odds of being struck by lightning? Uh, I thought that, you know, and of course, these, these are generalizations because if you run outside with a, a lead pole or a, a steel aluminum pole, your, your odds go up. But <laughs> in general, I, I got this from the National Weather Service. Uh, the odds of being struck by lightning once in your lifetime is one in 3,000. Really? That's... That yeah. seems kind of low, but yeah. one in 3,000. A little one more in, common than you might think. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So then I thought, well, gosh, what would it be to get struck by lightning twice in your lifetime? And I found out that it is, according to the same, the same uh, National Weather Service, that the odds of being struck by lightning twice in your lifetime are once in 9 million. 9 million. 9 million. That's it. Yeah, that's it. So what you're telling me is I have a better chance of being struck by lightning twice, twice. in my life than winning the Powerball. Twice. Now, obviously, people do win <laughs> it, though, right? I mean, there are yeah. people out there winning it. But, that's right. And that's the that's the draw uh-huh. for this, right? It's like, oh, it could be me. That's right. But it's so three times that, three times <laughs> nine million. <laughs> right. Right? To, no, 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 no. More than that. More than that. Right. It's like, yeah, it's like eight times nine million Right. Uh, to, to actually win Powerball. Yeah, that's pretty intense when you start putting it in that perspective, right? You know, you, you might as well go start... Uh, Running outside on stormy days with uh, with steel cleat shoes. I'm going to start. In the, in the pre-show, we were saying, uh, you know, what happens if you do get struck by lightning twice in your life? And we both came to the conclusion, buy a lottery ticket that day. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you yeah although you still don't have a great chance of winning, even if you get struck by lightning twice. But, okay, but there are people, Andrew, there are people who do win. Right. Um, and, and, and I assume when they do win, it's just bliss, right? I mean, they're wealthy, beyond their wildest dreams. There's no problems. They don't have to deal with anything. The, the, it's just easy street. It's amazing. Right? Well, that's what you would think, right? When I close my eyes and dream about uh, you know, winning the big one, uh, you know, I, I have all these plans of all the houses and cars I'd buy. And, and apparently a lot, of, a lot of people do too. But what we found, and you've probably, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there have seen these shows on Discovery Channel or History Channel, uh, where they document some of these folks who have actually won the lottery and what happens in their lives afterwards. Um, and, and as you probably know, it, it's usually not very good. But some researchers uh, went out um, from the University of Kentucky, University of Pittsburgh, and University of Vanderbilt, and they did a study on the Florida lottery. And I thought this was super interesting. Uh, they went out and they uh, looked from 1993 to 2002, and they looked at the 35,000 winners from that time period. And then of those, they tried to figure out um, how many of them filed for bankruptcy. And they found that roughly 5.5% of that entire group of winners filed for bankruptcy within five years of winning the lottery. So not only did they eventually file for bankruptcy, but it was within five years of winning a significant sum of money. Pretty quick. Now, do you know offhand what the numbers are the, of Americans, the percentage of Americans who file for bankruptcy each year? Is this 5%, oh, is that, is this a 5% higher than that, if you took that same population uh, or lower, you know, is it, in other words, what I'm trying to get to is, Andrew, is it the money that's causing them to, I mean, I would say, um, you know, regardless if we don't know that number, maybe we can look that up and, and drop it in the show notes, but, you know, you would think I've got this money that should insulate mm-hmm. me, right? And there's still 5% of them, which is still pretty low, but right. still 5% of them within the first five years 
are already bankrupt. <laughs> right. And I don't have that statistic of how many people file annually. And um, I think we'd, it'd be very eye-opening to see that probably in the last couple of years, that's gone up significantly. Significantly. There was a law change in 2005 um, that changed the way individuals could could file for bankruptcy. Um, it used to be that usually when you file for bankruptcy, uh, you would qualify for a certain chapter uh, where you had your debts expunged. And they changed it so it was harder to get all those debts expunged, and now you just get kind of a, a, a reallocation of debt, and that's the more common way. Um, so that kind of changed the bankruptcy situation in America. Uh, but, you know, that statistic would be interesting. And, I, and what I gather from this research report that I got is that 5.5% is significant in, in relation to the average uh, number of bankruptcies out there. And it's just as likely for us, the small lottery winners than it is for the larger ones. Right. right? I mean, they still, even the mega millionaires have a 5% chance of going bankrupt That's in right. the first five years. It would be interesting to know also what the statistics are of how many people take the lump sum payment as opposed to the annual, the annuitized right, uh, payment yeah. over 20 years. I've thought about that. I know you make less money. I, I I would be inclined if I did, and I don't play, but if I did, um, I'd take the annuity. Over, would you? Yeah, I would. That's I mean, interesting. I, because it would, it, for me, it would spread it out, right? So that way I would I would kind of be guaranteed the, the more money over time, and I'd actually treat it like income at that point. Yeah, so sure. I would say, oh, it's my job. Now, you know, I, there's some things I would choose to do differently, you know, of course, <laughs> right. I think, if I won that. But um, but not everybody, I guess, uh, the, as we look at these statistics, is the money changes people, and it doesn't always change it in a positive way like you would think. It doesn't necessarily put them on easy street once right. they have the money. Is that right? Well, and, and I would even go a step further and say that the money actually, it actually probably doesn't change people as much as we would want it to, right? When, when we think about you know, coming into a large sum of money, whether it's the lottery or inheritance or, or, or you know, uh, Beverly Hillbilly striking gold in your back, <laughs> black right. gold in your backyard. Right. Um, we like to think that that would instantly solve all of our problems. We would suddenly be better at uh, you know at managing our finances because we would have more. And really, what we found in our practice uh, at Guide Rock and our practice at, at Gallup Federal Credit Union and all the other different things that we do and the research that we've read is that really those large sum of money monies really just magnify people as they are. Hmm. So for those who are already managing their money very well, it, it, it magnifies that the, the power that they have. Exactly. There. For those that aren't, it makes them even worse money managers. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, it definitely, that's exactly what I'm saying, Jim. It's, it, it ends up being one of those scenarios where if, if, you're, a, if you're a stud that makes $40,000 a year and you're really good at saving and budgeting and, and all those kind of core principles, then if you suddenly have a, a million dollars or $100 million, you're still going to be good at that. Um, if you make $100,000 and you're not very good at budgeting and spending plans and saving and things like that, and you come into a million or a hundred million, uh, you're still not going to be very good at it. Nothing, nothing psychologically changes, uh, and those and those habits don't just magically form. Right. So, most of our listeners here, if we look at the statistics again, are probably none of them are probably going to win the lottery. Right? <laughs> right. Okay. So, why are we talking about the lottery? And let's talk a little bit about how can you win the lottery without ever playing the lottery? How can you be a winner? How can how can you get financially? You know, how can you win? Winning. Winning. Right? <laughs> how can you get there? Without playing the lottery, I mean, how do we do that? I mean, that's a that's a great question, and that's a really good segue into, into really what the meat and potatoes is. Is you know there are some fundamental things you can do to create your own personal lottery, if you will, um, and it's really not as hard as people would think. Um, you know, we we send we tend to set up these mental barriers um, on on why it makes sense to 
buy a dollar's worth of lottery tickets but not save a dollar. Um, and in reality, you can do a couple of th- the first thing that's really important that you could do is what we like to say, pay yourself first. Um, it's kind of a simple principle, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard of that. Uh, but what does it mean? Uh, you know, what does it mean when I say pay yourself first? Um, really, what it means is literally at, before you pay any other bills, before you take any other deductions from your paycheck or anything like that, uh, set aside a certain amount of dollars every single pay period, specifically for saving. Um, it might be retirement saving. It might be college savings for your kids. It might be just be emergency fund savings. But if you do that first, um, before you do anything else, then now all of a sudden it's a little bit easier to to make it happen. Why do you think most people struggle with that? What you know? Why that would seem easy, right? Set up an automatic payment. Set up an account somewhere that makes mm-hmm. that may be difficult to get to. And then just fund that. And yet, when I talk to people about that, or or, or in in the past when I've talked to people about that, it it seems very difficult to do. What what stops people? Do you think? Well, if if people are trying to do it by physically writing a check, it's because we've got other things we'd rather do with that money. I mean, if if something gets into my checking account personally, Jim, if something's in my checking account, it is fair game to be spent. <laughs> and and I think a lot of people operate that way. I mean, if it's in there, then you know, gosh, we're going out to eat, or we're uh, we're heading to our favorite. Uh, big box store uh, to, to buy the latest supplies. Right. Yeah. It's, it's that tax return thing. Right? Exactly. Get, I got some money in my account. I'm going to go buy something. Exactly. Yeah. So really, uh, you know, the, the biggest barrier is that mental barrier. And the, and it's really the first time you set it up. So if you say, you know, hey, Andrew and Jim have been talking on the radio about, you know, doing th- setting things up to be automatic, have it automatically taken out of my pay or automatically taken out of uh, my, my savings account. It's really that first step doing it. It's ripping the bandaid off, if you will. Yeah. It's, you know, that first time it comes out because then after that, you're not even going to notice it. Yeah. And there's some, there's some easy ways to do that electronically, right? I mean, Absolutely. A couple different ways to do that. Right? Yeah, there are a couple different ways. And there's some terminology here that you guys might get a kick out of. Um, the first one would be uh, what we call a payroll deduction. So uh, literally your payroll processor at your work uh, might have the ability to go in and before you ever receive your direct deposit, allocate some of your pay towards your retirement account or towards a savings account. A lot of employers are doing this now as an incentive to get their to get their employees to contribute. Um, it's in their best interest for you to be financially fit <laughs> right. and saving for retirement. So a lot of people are offering that now. Um, that's one option. Uh, the second option is what we would call an ACH. Um, an ACH stands for Automated Clearinghouse. Um, and what that is, is it's basically an electronic transfer from one financial institution to another. Um, so, you know, if you have an online account, like a, like an ING Direct account, which, you know, has a little bit higher interest, um, you can set up your primary account to have an electronic automatic deduction sent over to that other financial institution, you know, maybe the second of every month. Um, and that's another great way to do it. Um, and, and kind of the last way to do it um, would be to do a bill pay option. And that's where you push it over there using your bill pay um, via your online banking or whatever to that other financial institution rather than having the other financial institution grab it from you. Uh, those are really the three options, and you can set all of them up to be automatic. Um, and it's it's a fantastic way to get this stuff started. Yeah, and, and there used to be a saying um, by an infomercial guy, right? Set it and forget it. That's right. right. Ron Popeil's rotisserie right. cooker. Ron Co. Set it and forget <laughs> it. Now, that, that can apply to savings as well, right? Set that amount. Do it when you get paid because it doesn't seem so bad when you move $100 when you have, let's say, you make $1,000 every week. Right. And when you move that 
50 or 25 or 100, whatever it's going to be, doesn't seem so bad when it comes out of the 1,000 as That's opposed right. to waiting, did I pay all the bills? Well, magically, all the bills will take all the money. That's right. right. That's amazing how that happens. That. So that's why your advice is to spend that stuff first, right? Mm-hmm. Get that out of there. Move it into the savings. And then does it really help uh, um, from a savings perspective to not look at that savings account very often so you don't get tempted to spend it? Absolutely. It does help. It helps it to be um, physically removed and not easily uh, viewable. And here's a little extra value add, because I know a lot of people who are listening out there have heard this before. Um, So here's your little extra value add. Where people go wrong most of the time, Jim, is that most of us get some sort of raise every year, right? Most of us get some sort of cost of living adjustment or performance uh, improvement raise. Um, And what we tend to do is we tend to forget to increase that automatic savings along along with our new income. Um, so what effectively happens is if you don't increase it right away when that new uh, bigger paycheck comes, then you're going to get used to that higher lifestyle and you're not going to be saving anymore. You want to increase these automatic contributions when you get an increase in pay as well. And I would do it proportionally. So if you get a 10% raise, increase your contribution uh, by that, that equal amount. So it, it works out It works out great because you just keep, you increase your savings, but your paycheck doesn't feel any different. Yeah. One of the things or tricks I've tried is, because I always, sometimes I forget to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I just try and raise it 1% a year regardless. Yeah. Right? That's another just great way. Year comes 1%. doesn't matter if I made more, if I got a raise, if I'm making less, whatever. I'm going to put that 1% more in my budget and then adju- adjust everything else. Now that doesn't always work because- mm-hmm. You know, kind of based on the year or, or, or what, you know, accidents or emergencies and yeah. things like that. But um, it's a good rule of thumb every year. Just like if you're – so if you have some investments and you reallocate once a year, use that opportunity each year to, to maybe put one more percent in your savings or one more percent in your 401K or one more percent to your Roth IRA or, or whatever you're doing. Right. Just automatically kick that thing up each year. Right. And so that kind of get, brings us to a really great question. So how much should you be saving? And this is kind of the age old, uh, you know, everybody's got a rule of thumb. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a finance nerd. So I really kind of geek out over new statistics and new research that's been done. And uh, there is a professor, uh, he's out of Tokyo, actually. Um, and his name is Wade Fowl. And uh, he went to Princeton and, and, you know, has all the, all the cool Ph.D. statistics and all that kind of stuff. But basically, he asked the question, uh, when, you, when you hit retirement, and we've always kind of thought that um, you need about 4% return on your money to sustain your retirement through retirement. And we asked the question, is that true? And so he did a whole bunch of deep study looking at, um, you know, past events and, and, and what he found out. And long story short, you could read this whole article out there. It's on the web if you wanted to. But long story short, what he found is that if you save 16.62% per year of your salary, if you do that every year, you will virtually guarantee, based on, on past results of studies, um, guarantee that you'll have enough for retirement um, when you, when you get there. Well, that's a lot. 16% is a lot. That's significant for sure. And, and he found that if you do it, you actually have to save 16.62 for 30 years in order for it to last you for 30 years. Um, so you have to save quite a bit for 30 years. And, you know, and I think a lot of people would say, hey, man, that's a, that's a lot of money. Even 10% is a lot of money. Yeah. Do you find that people then don't contribute as much in their younger years and end up playing catch up uh, in their older years? Maybe the kids are gone. The kids, you know, they've, yeah. they've gotten married, moved away. 
um, folks are cramming a lot of money. Of course, which is not as powerful, uh, putting it away later than right. sooner, right? Because time is never on your side when, That's it, right. when it comes to what's well, on your, it, yeah, you know, you know what I mean with that. So um, you see a lot of that? Absolutely. And I think that's the mentality that a lot of people take is, uh, you know, kind of deferring on that savings saying, well, we've got, you know, we've got the kids in daycare or, well, we've got, you know, kids in private school. And before they know it, they're, you know, 45, 50. Um, and really retirement is imminent. It's coming upon them. They want to do that. And so they're trying to cram it away in the last 10 years. Um, and that really brings down your ability to accumulate enough assets at retirement. Um, and so, and then that kind of throws out that 16.62, uh, percent figure too, cause you have to do that for 30 years, according to this study from Wade. Um, so, you, you know, but at the end of the day, that's what a lot of people are struggling through. And can you retire by saving a bunch towards the end? Sure. Um, is it the best way to do it? No, <laughs> I think it'd be better to be a little bit more comfortable uh, when you're in your fifties. Yeah. But. Well, I think the key is some planning, right? Uh, right. Meet with somebody, project some things out. You, you know, I've been talking a lot about this. Um, lately is is I really want to sit down with you and I kind of want to put some scenarios together in a spreadsheet that says, okay, if I do this, I'll end here. If I do this, I'll end here. And put, Because you never know how life's going to go. That's right. So you need a couple scenarios. You need to have kind of have a plan right. um, to put some things together. And so I, I think it's not a bad idea to put together some basic spending and savings plans. We talked about spending plans the other day, but I think equally important is a savings plan. Right. So you kind of know, you know, project at a 7% return, project at a 9% return. That's right. Um, sometimes we project too high, you know. If Absolutely. You, if, if we say, well, I'm going to guarantee 12% over the next 25 years, that's probably unrealistic right. for, for most people. And if it hits, great, but don't plan on 12%. <laughs> I know. Bring that thing down to 6 7 8% and and over, I mean, if anything, you want to err on the side of oversaving, right? Right, exactly. And I, and I think, you know, you hit on an important point there that when you do that kind of savings planning and retirement accumulation planning, uh, it's fluid. You know, you can't just uh, set it and back in 1980 and, and be working off that same plan in 2011. It, it doesn't work that way. Uh, it's a very fluid document. It's got to be something that you revisit every 12 months or, or more often if things are changing. So from a technology standpoint and using some technology to help me and, and some of the savings planning, um, you had sent me some links. And so let's go through them just real quick and, yeah. and we can talk about them. So uh, the first one's called LifeTick. It's just LifeTick. That sounds kind of funny. L-I-F-E-T-I-C-K, LifeTick.com. Uh, and that is, is kind of a, a coaching um, savings tool of some sort, right? That's, right. That's online. Yeah, all these are kind of built around that whole social networking um, idea, basically where you can go in, put down your goals on a web format, uh, you know, kind of create some uh, really, you know, aesthetically pleasing <laughs> um, um, goal sheets, and you can choose to share those with the other people using the websites. And all three of these, uh, all three of these sites do the same thing essentially um, that we're going to talk about. But basically, what it does is is it helps keep you accountable, and that's the toughest thing about goals, right? Is um, to not only just create them, but also be accountable for them. And so this is kind of a social, these are social networking ways to uh, keep you accountable for your goals. Very interesting. Uh, another one called Goal For It, G-O-A-L-F-O-R-I-T. Goalfort.com. Goalfort. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it's interesting. They, these do have some, some, some social components to them, right? Some right. accountability at a social level. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can, I mean, it's one of those things where you can choose not to, not to share it with the other users and you can kind of just use it for email alerts and for follow-ups and, and kind of a place to check in on your goals and, and kind of have them in a nice format. But I think the real power comes when, when you're sharing them with everybody and people can say, Hey, 
hey, user one, two, three, four, how's your goal coming? Yeah, there you go. This one, Goal For It, um, has not only to help you set some goals, right, but it has a chore chart for kids, right? Right. This is, this is kind of unique. A behavioral chart, right, for kids. And, you know, those, as a kid, we always made those out of cardboard and, you know, a big piece of paper, and you'd write the lines and put the stars up. That's right. All available online. Uh, and I imagine that's, that's stuff where the kids could probably log in with maybe their account and update Absolutely. Their, update their things, uh, create a to-do list of things that you need to do. Um, it's probably got a lot of resources available in it as well to kind of help you with the savings plan. Yeah, the idea is to kind of prioritize your life and prioritize your goals. Um, you know, so sometimes we just need a format uh, that is unique and different and to really kind of help us uh, establish that stuff. The, uh, the other one you had a link in there is called Habit Forge, H-A-B-I-T-F-O-R-G-E. Uh, it's interesting on the front of their website, it says it takes at least 21 days to form a habit. And, and I've heard that statistic before, yeah. right? That you, you've got to, if you want something, if you want to create a habit in your life, you need to go out and, and, uh, do it for 21 days straight before it'll actually sink in. So I imagine this one is built around that idea. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know, I think it's, I love that idea of habit forge, forging something into steel um, to make it last you a lifetime. You know, I'm trying to get back into uh, exercising again here, having finished graduate school and stuff. I got a little bit more, <laughs> That's good. a little bit more free time. That's good. We'll have to talk about that on the fitness tech podcast yeah, right yeah. behind this one. Yeah. Jamie and, and everybody on that podcast could talk about this, but uh, you know, it's true. I mean, if you, do, if you can commit to doing something every day for 21 days, suddenly it's, it's hard not to do it anymore. And, yeah. um, and it's the same thing with anything, you know, working out, especially, uh, you know, budgeting, saving, if you can do that every day for 21 days, what a great, what a great way to, to forge a habit. Yeah. Now if this one, uh, if you live in your inbox, which a lot of people, a lot of us do, right. Although my inbox is completely out of control, but if you live in your inbox, this forge ha- or this habit, uh, yeah, Habit Forge sends you, you set up goals, mm-hmm. and then every day it sends you an email. It says, did you do this, yes or no? Right. Right? And and it's your reminder, you know, and you want to click yes, right? Of course. And so that's the, <laughs> that's the goal in this. Um, it's free. I think they do take donations um, right. for, for folks that find this helpful. But, uh, again, one of those ways of using technology to – and I imagine it can be a daily or a weekly or a monthly kind of reminder type deal. So did you save, you know, on a weekly basis if your goal on Monday is to move money from your checking to your savings? Did you do that? Probably still not the best way to do that. I'm, right. Might know, be a good way to get started, though. Yeah. Um, it might be a good way to uh, – to start exploring the ideas of, 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 you know, implementing some of these goals you might have, you know, and, you know, kind of coming back around full circle to that saving 16.6% of your salary, you know, guys, that's a goal, right? Most of us uh, can't just turn around and, and turn up our savings to 16% if we've only been saving eight, right? Double down on our savings, um, you know, but maybe that's something you can work towards in the next two or three years. And one of these sites could help you work to that towards that. Um, maybe they could help you uh, implement um, some cost-saving techniques um, that you come up with, like maybe only going to Starbucks twice a week rather than five days a week, or things like that, um, and checking it off your list so that when you, it's time to raise your contribution level 1% or 2%, it's a little bit easier to do. Yeah, it's a great idea. So walking away from this then, uh, obviously, um, like I said before, none of us are probably going to win the lottery. I mean, the chances are with the number of listeners that we have, uh, none of us are going to win the lottery. 
What uh, go through those steps again for me? What do I need to do to 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 win the lottery without playing the lottery? Right. So here are the steps. Here's the takeaway, guys. Uh, number one, you got to pay yourself first. It's kind of a cliche saying, uh, saying, but it really does make a difference. Pay yourself first. Set up those uh, automatic deductions. Uh, the second one is have a goal of saving 16.6% of your salary every year. I know most of us probably can't get there right away, but I'm not a big fan of excuses, so I like setting the goal and getting after it. Uh, the, the third one is, hey, as we all know now, playing the lottery is kind of a waste of time, um, and it's a pretty big waste of emotion and money, too. So uh, create your own lottery by implementing some of these things. And the last one is, like we've been saying on all of these podcasts, I think, you got to make it automatic. Use some of this technology to create barriers in your life and to create reminders to do these things. I mean, there's all kinds of free resources out there. If you just Google search them, you can come up ways to make things automatic. Um, it's going to be different for everybody. Some stuff works for folks, some stuff doesn't. Um, but you got you to do it, and it's going to really help you in your, in your journey. Excellent. Well, hey, we got about five minutes left uh, on the podcast. I want to switch gears a little bit, and I didn't sure. prep you for this in advance. So this is the point in the show where I surprise Andrew, and, <laughs> and, and we see how he responds. But I uh, want to shift gears, talk a little bit about the market. Um, and certainly over the last couple of weeks, we've had some major changes in, in our in the world economy right? Uh, with Japan getting hit as hard as it, as it has. Um, and, of course, they're a major manufacturer of technology parts for things. We saw the price of computer components and memory, especially, uh, I think, oh, 70% yeah. of the world's memory is made uh, right there in Japan uh, in some of those areas that were affected by tsunami. Um, I know you don't, uh, you don't follow the market with a, tel- or with a, with a, you know, a, um, a, you know, a scope, a magnifying glass, right? Right. But you do follow it. What have you seen over the last couple of weeks, and are there any trends out there that are that, that worry you from a long-term perspective? That's, those, are, those are some very deep questions, Jim, but I'll take a stab at it. You know, um, surprisingly, um, the, the stock market, specifically equity markets, have uh, outside of Japan itself. The Japan, the Nikkei, is down uh, nearly 80% in some sectors, uh, which is just uh, very wild to think about. But if you, if you kind of take yourself back and think about where we were in 2008, it's a real possibility here, even in the United States, for that, something like that to happen. Um, but other, other economies, other markets out there, have been relatively unscathed. Um, in the United States, uh, we've actually had the first winning streak uh, last week uh, that we've had for several weeks. The market's back up. Um, even with the conflicts in Libya, um, the stuff going on in Japan, the other things going on, um, the Iraq war still, or the Afghanistan war still going on, um, you know, the market's just kind of ignoring that. Um, and that's a sign that uh, people are uh, ready to go again. Um, you know, housing numbers have still been bad. I, th- I still think uh, housing market has got a long road ahead of it. But uh, the, the overall, the market is saying, hey, we don't care about that. Earnings are good. Um, and hey, stock price follows earnings. And so the, the market has been kind of relatively unscathed. That being said, um, interest rates are still a real concerning area for us um, and for, for our clients. Um, right now, interest rates are so low, they can only go up. Um, and what that affects is it affects bond prices and it affects lending rates. Um, and specifically, bond prices are the scariest place right now, in my opinion. Um, as interest rates rise, the value of bonds falls. And with interest rates so low, really, 
they can only go up. And who knows when that's going to happen? And you know, it's not. I'm not in the business of trying to time that. Um, but what I can tell you is that when they do go up, the value of bonds is going to go down. Uh, that's, that's mathematically uh, the way it has to happen. And so there's a lot of folks that got scared um, during you know during the 2009 2010 stuff. And uh, went in and, and bought a bunch of mutual funds that were specific in bonds, right? Or exchange traded funds that were specific to bonds, and um, it's kind of a double whammy, right? Yeah, I mean, it sure is. So they 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 raced to bonds in a declining market and probably sold at a loss, and then now the the, the bonds are taking a pounding at this. Or yeah, could or could right potentially could right. be taking a pounding. Bonds have started to get volatile, which uh, so they haven't quite taken the pounding that I anticipate yet. Um, but uh, they're starting to bounce around a little bit, um, and I, I'm, I tell you what, I think I think it's a scary place to be, and uh, it's something we're trying to manage. Excellent, excellent. Well, I won't put you on the spot like that every time. We had a few extra minutes, and sure. I thought it'd be interesting to get your opinion on what's going on. Uh, if you like that little segment, uh, you know, uh, usually this comes out a couple days after we record it, and we don't try and be you know, day traders uh, <laughs> right. here in this. But if you like that segment and, and you want to hear more of that, Andrew, I always appreciate your take on the market. And, and uh, maybe we can throw a little bit more of that in each uh, each show, yeah, and, and folks can get an update of what's going on. If we had more time, maybe I'll ask you the next time. You know, gas is getting expensive. Oh man, and, uh, and that's that, a whole podcast, Jim. Yeah, and that has a whole effect on our economy. Absolutely. And so it's one of those kind of things I, I, I'm I'm always kind of watching because I know nothing will put the brakes on an economy faster than the price of gas. Yeah. I mean, interest rates and gasoline, those, those are the two things that they can control you better our, believe our it. economy with. And so uh, maybe next time we'll spend a little bit about a little bit of time uh, talking about what does it mean if gas hits $4 or $4.50 a gallon. Right. Um, it looks like it's slowed down or at least um, uh, halted its rise right. at about the three fifty level. Uh, but that's still pretty. That's still pretty painful uh, for <laughs> some folks. And, and I think if we get closer to four or over four, um, we could really see some uh, halting in the economy. We really don't need that at this point. So, well, Andrew, thanks again for coming out uh, this afternoon and recording this. And and uh, thanks for your advice on the lottery. Not a big lottery player here, but if you do, um, you know, it's they say it's fun. But uh, take that money and save it. Right? Hey, I mean, chances are better. <laughs> With you saving it, then spending it on, on, on lottery tickets. we got some good stuff for you. We'll see you back next time. Again, you can send us, if, you, if you'd like to get some input into the show, podcast at theaverageguy.tv, and uh, that will get you into us, and uh, you may even get mentioned on the show. We'll see you here next time. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks.